Hello, fabulous Filling Chai listeners. How are you? Welcome to season two, episode eight of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. While many of you who follow my work may know that I am a massive feminist, how many of you know that I am actually a raging feminist? Feminism for me is more than just believing in women's equal rights as human beings. I also rely on it in a very spiritual way to hold me up, to give me hope, inspiration, and motivation. A lot of this comes from the women in my life, especially the feminist writers and authors who over the course of my career have become mentors and friends and whose work and words feed my soul. One such person for me is Soraya Shamali, and she is our guest today. Shamali is an award-winning journalist and author whose work puts a bright, incisive light on what it means to be a woman in a world built by men. Many of you know her as the author of the international bestseller, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which is a critical examination of the social construction of anger and its effects on women's lives. Rage is Shamali's first book, which was named a Best Book of 2018 by The Washington Post, Fast Company, and Psychology Today, amongst many others. It has been published in four languages, including Italian, and described as, quote, good for women and for the future of this country by none other than Gloria Steinem. And Shamali joins us today. Hello and welcome to Spilling Chai, Soraya. So you are an amazing feminist writer and author and honestly, one of my favorite in the world. But a lot of people don't know about your background, that you spent more than 15 years as a market development executive and consultant in the media and data technology industries. Tell me more about how you made this incredible career jump. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, thank you for your kind words and welcome and invitation. I'm just always so happy when we have a chance to talk. My sort of professional trajectory, I would describe more as a kind of boomerang. I really started writing in high school and in college. I, I went to Georgetown where I started a feminist magazine. And I left college thinking that I would go into the workplace and take my feminist sensibilities with me and the world would become an increasingly progressive place. And that was pretty much the way feminism would work in adult life, which of course is, depending on your perspective, orange smoke and mirrors, magic beans, I I don't know, idealistic fantasy. But I did continue writing and I was an editor. And about three or four years after that, I realized that what I liked to do was be able to feed myself, which writing wasn't doing. Uh, So I was at Gannett Newspapers at the time and switched to what was then called market development and marketing strategy and also new media. So how do we use emerging technologies for marketing purposes, market development purposes, subscriber retention, questions like that. And over the course of five, 10, and eventually 15 years, I immersed myself in that work, uh, during which time I gained an expertise, but also realized that as far as women's rights were going, we were going backwards. I felt very strongly that uh, we were in the midst of a conservative backlash and no amount of individual efficacy or effort was going to do the trick. So in 2010, I more or less chucked all of that. I had a consulting company at that time and I went back to writing full-time about women, women's rights, intersectional feminism, transnational feminism, pretty much any aspect of culture that I could think to write about from the perspective of 
what its relevance was to women's equality. And that's more or less what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I will say that what happened immediately, though, made me really marry those two parts of my my life because as you know well if you are a woman on the internet and you explicitly identify as feminist that makes you a target for a lot of vitriol and so as i say i became an unwilling a, a reluctant activist for women's safety free speech political and civic engagement because the pushback online is so vitriolic uh, and it's really having a spillover effect on on girls and women everywhere Oh, yes. I don't know. I mean, I feel like all women deal with it, but some women really, I mean, you have to tolerate so much of it. You, I think about you, I think about Jessica Valenti. I mean, you know, my regular, my regular friends who are not, uh, you know, don't do the kind of work that we do. They think that the trolling and the hate mail I get is just insane. And I'm like, you should see and hear some other stories. That I know. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way too. It's terrible because it becomes kind of normalized. And we know that so many, so many women really get terrible, terrible content thrown at them regularly. And some choose to seed the ground because it just feels terrible and it feels unsafe and it's not really worth it to them. And, you know, that's everybody's personal decision. People have to do what they feel is right. Yeah. Um, I feel like it, I, I, I appreciate so much that women are calling them out more now and the screenshots and tweeting them out because it's just like that shame that you kind of feel or that disgust so needs to be transferred right on, onto the perpetrator. So I, I love when I see women calling out their trolls or the terrible messages that they get just screenshotting because I mean, sometimes I get to the point where I think nothing can shock me anymore. And then I'm like, wow, look at this. I mean, oh my goodness, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's always a situation where it manages to not be surprising and yet shocking at the same time. Yes. Yes, exactly. Perfectly articulated. Okay. Moving on to my next question, your book, <laughs> Rage Becomes Her, in many ways is revolutionary because it calls for us to fundamentally change how we view and approach anger, especially women's anger. I think the opening scene in Rage Becomes Her, when you tell that story about your mom, which is also the story you tell in the beginning of your TED Talk mm -hmm. about your mother breaking your wedding china, and I'm sure you've, you know, I'm sure people talk to you about this scene <laughs> and this story I, and the message that it sent you, you know, watching her break her wedding china. And I think it's some of the best writing I have ever read. Oh, that's so nice. It really is. I mean, I, I simultaneously like love you and then I want to write like you and be you. And uh, what is your what does your mom think about about <laughs> the story? Are you writing about this? What was your reaction? So first of all, I, I mean, obviously I asked my mom before using the story because Oh, you're a good daughter. <laughs> well, you know, I mean you, you have you have to be fair and cognizant. And I think I think my mother's been an unbelievable supporter of what I'm doing in my writing. And it was pretty funny because when I called her to sort of go through this memory of mine, because, you know, memory is so subjective and contingent, and I could have had a radically different memory of what was going on than she had. And she may not have remembered at all, you know? And so when I asked her, her first response was hilarious. She burst out laughing and she said, oh, I 
I threw so many more plates than you saw that day. <laughs> and I just laughed. Because she goes, she says, I got much better at, at breaking less valuable plates, you know, <laughs> and it was just a funny response, you know. And so she, she gave me permission and eventually I sort of walked her through my thinking. And, you know, I think for every generation of women, every generation has to come to terms with their own lives and their own sense of autonomy and agency in context. And I don't think that ever ends, you know, I don't think it ends ever. You, you sort of are in a constant state of flux and change and response in my mind. And I certainly think that that was her, her feeling towards it. Like, you know, I would not have thought that then, but I can certainly see that now. I love that response of hers. It's so, it's such a diva response. <laughs> she didn't say, oh, I didn't throw the plates or, oh, that was a terrible thing. You know, she was like, oh, that was the least of it. Oh. <laughs> I love that. I like imagine your mom is like Sophia Loren saying like, oh, that. (laughs) I've met your mom and what I think they share, my mom and your mom. It's, I think, being quite small, but over like their, their personalities defy that, you know? Yes. Oh my goodness. A thousand percent. (laughs) Um, I love that. What a great story. Um, So your book was on the best, I can't even remember all the accolades, the best book of 2018 selection for NPR, for Washington Post, Psychology Today. It was a best feminist book selection. And a central question in your book is who is allowed to get angry? Yes. So what is your answer to that question? Is it only men who have that privilege? Because we know women are not allowed. So again, I think it's really contextual, right? Because in general, no matter where you are in the world, anger is associated with men and masculinity. It's seen as a masculine emotion and an attribute that actually contributes to our sense of quote unquote real manhood. But that gets very complicated, right? It gets complicated by race and ethnicity and sexuality and caste and status and So what I try and show in the book is how those layers of identity are used to regulate people's expression of anger, which ultimately is an expression of need and demand for reciprocity from your society, whether that is a spouse, your family, your community, your country as a citizen. And so the reason I wrote it was because in 2016, it was so evident that some people primarily white people, primarily men, had oversized political efficacy and that they had the right to be angry and see that and have that anger be seen as legitimate political anger and a right of citizenship. And virtually no one else had that the same way. Certainly not women, certainly not black men, brown men. Um, So I wanted to talk about anger, not so much as a subjective experience of emotion, that everybody has and everybody should have the right to understand, but as a political entitlement that is socially constructed. Yes, a political entitlement. Ah, I love that. So Gloria Steinem said that rage becomes her, quote, will be good for women and for the future of this country. After all, women have a lot to be angry about. What do you think is the state of the feminist movement today? Where are we? You know, the other day I was watching the two Glorias, you know, that movie that just came out about Gloria. I just felt like before, you know, like we we don't have that such identifiable kind of tangible 
movements like that anymore. I mean, not movements, should I say, but specific times, you know, in the movement. Like, where are we? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, well, first of all, I clearly we are in an era of global sort of backlash. People call it anger. I would call it resentment. We can see the kind of resentment that's fueling macho fascism in many, many, many states, state after state after state, right? And we can see the rising tide of that in homophobia and xenophobia and racism and terrible misogyny. But at the same time, I think we're seeing a real efflorescence of feminisms, plural, everywhere. Really vibrant grassroots movements that are seeking change at virtually every level of society. So social, cultural, artistic, political, from legal frameworks, um, in, the, in the medical field. Um, so, so I feel quite optimistic. It may not be as hegemonically defined as it was in the mid 20th century in America, largely dominated by white women, not, certainly not entirely, but certainly media portrayed it as that way. But, you know, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, this was a movement started and led by three black queer women. And it, it, it is a deeply, deeply intersectional feminist movement. And it's global, right? That is so fantastic. What an excellent point. Yes, you are a thousand percent right. So it has been such a toxic four years for women of color with Trump in the White House and just the general state of affairs at this point. But there is hope on this upcoming election ticket. What does uh, Kamala Harris being on the VP ticket mean to you, especially like in such bleak times as far as, you know, white nationalism, white supremacy? What does she mean to you? Well, I mean, I'm sort of sad because it's a truly historic event to have Kamala Harris in this role, right? In this in this race, in this position. She's a Black and South Asian woman, and she's brilliant, and she has a presence, and she has a sort of political ambition, and she has a, a way of expressing herself that calls people in. And so if we weren't in the middle of such an epic clusterfuck, we would really appreciate what that means, right? But instead, it gets subsumed in all the badness that you're talking about. Um, so I try very hard when I'm thinking about what's going on or talking about what's going on to really put in perspective what it means to have this woman at this time possibly become our vice president. Such a perspective shift. Okay, so we're going to pivot to something softer and less intense, but I don't think I have ever really sat down to seriously discuss your family pet rabbit, Vlad? <laughs> is that his name? Yes. It is, right? Because I just saw it on your Instagram. First of all, how did you never, ever tell me about that? You have a bunny as a pet. Can you tell me everything about Vlad? So my bunny is actually my, my eldest daughter really, really, really wanted this rabbit. And she found a baby rabbit close enough for us to drive and go pick up and came home with this rabbit. And even the most cold hearted person on earth could not resist having a baby rabbit. I don't care what anybody says. Like this is the most innocent creature on earth who is like a living stuffed animal and therapy pet, like really and truly it's an amazing pet. Very smart too. I mean, I was surprised by uh, how engaging and clever this 
little rabbit was. But then my daughter promptly left for school without the rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) So we we ended up having a a family rabbit. Um, And I really can't say enough good things about this pet. He's the the rabbit is uh, completely house trained, so wanders around. We don't have a dog, so that makes it a little simpler. But he kind of, you know, you forget you have a rabbit. And then all of a sudden, he sort of leaps into your line of sight. I just think, did your rabbit just go by? Well, how long have you had him? Like a long time, right? Oh, my gosh. I think now five years. Wow. How long do rabbits live? They're not like hamsters, right? No, usually around eight years. Wow. So that's pretty respectable. I mean, not as much as a cat or dog, but what do you do about the poop? Well, this this is the thing. Like, it's litter trained, and and I I wouldn't have had the patience to do that, but she did. Um, so, by and large, it's not a problem. So, really fantastic. I mean, it, it's not completely foolproof. Do they let you snuggle them? If they do, like they like to be groomed and pet, and if they trust you, they sort of lick your arm as you're petting them. <laughs> and once in a while he'll leap up on the chair you're sitting on so that you can pay attention to him. And he'll definitely follow you around. Like he wants company. He'll follow you around the house. He love you the most or your husband? Uh, Well, that's an ongoing conversation in the house. I feel that it wouldn't be fair of me to comment and not give other people the chance to comment. Very kind of you. Yeah. Don't you think that's benevolent? True mom. I like to think that I'm the favorite person of the bunny, but I probably doubt that's the case. You sound like you are. And he's licking your arm. That's intense. I mean, my cat does that. No, my cat loves me. It's very cute. (laughs) My cat truly loves me. Okay, um, last question. What are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? Oh, my goodness. You know, I was with a group of writers last night online, and everyone was talking about how hard it is to think straight right now, you know, this election going on. And I'm not in of the mind that the election will come and go peacefully and that we'll have some kind of resolution. I, I really genuinely feel like it will be so long until we have any sense of security or closure. So it's I'm finding it hard to write, although I am writing a book and it kind of it morphed very rapidly over four or five months. I think I wrote three or four book proposals in that period. And I'm writing a book that's sort of a history of the idea of trauma which is sort of fascinating and what it means in this moment to to have a global experience happening. So that's what I'm sort of working on. And I recently took a job as the executive director of an organization called the Representation Project, whose work I love. It's really about challenging stereotypes, gender stereotypes, and the way they, you know, intersect with other stereotypes to shape shape our lives. Um, But they make films and there's a youth media academy. And last summer we trained 66 young people in filmmaking. So really trying to put the tools of storytelling and narrative and social impact into the hands of young people in a determined way. So it's sort of, it's exciting. Wow. Uh, Well, it sounds like you're getting a lot of work done. Uh, What do you do? What's kind of like your trick when you are kind of feeling like, oh, I can't write or you know, or you find yourself procrastinating or just feeling exhausted. I mean, do you have any tricks, any tricks of the trade? A lot of people think you should just keep writing, you know, keep writing. Like, you know, I tend to write in bursts of what I can only really describe of extreme concentration. Like I wrote Rage more or less in four months in very strange circumstances, but I was 
I was in a unique position that made intense concentration possible. And I'm not in that position now. Intense concentration, for all the reasons we know, is very, very difficult. So what I tend to do is read, actually. Like, I'm trying to be kind to myself and just say, you know what? You cannot make this happen. But I take a great deal of inspiration from other people's work in terms of reading and thinking about what they're saying. And at some point, I'm, I will just have to buckle down, you know? Yeah. There just has to be a discipline at, at some point. You know, my, um, I'm still very close to my AP English, <laughs> my high school AP English teacher, uh, Ms. Biso, even though she's always like, call me Donna. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I mean, I speak. I just, uh, I just can't. And now that I have my daughters calling her Miss B, so I'm like, I really just <laughs> call you that forever. That's so sweet. I know it is. It's so, it's really cute, uh, and I really, I love it. But I was telling her that one of the most amazing things that she taught us and taught me by being such a strict teacher in high school was really the discipline of writing. Yes, it is the discipline, right? Oh, and you have to have rigor. Yes. Yes, you really do. I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, well, Soraya, this was so awesome. Thank you so much. This was so great talking to you. Thank you for asking me to do this. It's so great to talk to you. Oh, so good to speak to you too. Thanks, Soraya. I'll talk to you soon. I'm not going to lie, folks. These are scary times. As I record this, America is a week away from an election that could divide this country further along partisan lines or put us on a long but much needed road to healing. This election will also have massive consequences for women's health and rights, not only in America, but around the world, especially with the newest addition to the Supreme Court of the United States. Now more than ever, not only are women's lives more entwined, but the power of our anger is needed more than ever. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. For our U.S. voters, <laughs> our, our U.S.-based listeners, I should say, I hope everybody has voted. Our vote matters. Your vote matters. Make sure to review and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast streaming app. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Chai.